On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Jacob Denhollander about penal substitutionary atonement. So we talk about topics like, uh, is it just? What is justice? Is it abusive? What is abuse? Um, It's a really good episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And as always, if you have thoughts or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, uh, ideas, requests, whatever that may be, feel free to hit us up anywhere, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, uh, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking. Um, both me and Brandon are Reformed Baptists, but most of our guests are not, um, though some of them are. And I would imagine today we have a guest that is uh, somewhat part of our tribe, um, hopefully not the uh, annoying internet angry tribe. I don't know if I just angered half of our listeners or not. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Um, either way, I'm really excited to talk to Jacob Denhollander today about uh, penal substitutionary atonement, in particular relation to abuse and the charges like cosmic child abuse when it comes to atonement. I think however many years it's been, I know Jacob can walk us through this uh, as we talk about it, but it seems like this is a charge that I see more and more, especially on the internet, um, that God is somehow like cosmically abusing his son uh, through penal substitutionary atonement. So what do we do with that? What is penal substitutionary atonement and all those types of questions we're going to ask him. So uh, Jacob, I'll let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, for those who may not know who you are, um, maybe they know you, who your wife is, who's done a lot of awesome stuff and has got some cool books that they need to check out. Um, but maybe they don't know who you are uh, and how you relate to everything. So maybe you can just introduce us, uh, give us a little bit of background to yourself before we jump into the topic. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm not a Reformed Baptist. I'm a particular Baptist. Uh, I do go to the, I, I go to the, uh, attend and I'm a member at the Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville. Um, so I do confess the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, second, like, second London Baptist Confession of Faith, that is. Um, so I am a Canadian living in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I've lived here for about nine years. I've uh, been attending Southern Seminary that entire time. I uh, finished my MDiv in 2016, and I've been working on my PhD in systematics since then. I am, uh, of course, married to Rachel Denhollander. Um, uh, if anyone doesn't know who she is, um, she's done a lot of work on the uh, this topic of abuse, sexual abuse. Um, she was the first woman to publicly accuse former uh, United States gymnastics uh, team doctor Larry Nasser of abusing her as a, as a teenager. Uh, that led to his eventual arrest and hundreds and hundreds of women coming forward to uh, um, say that he had, he had abused them too. Um, so she's been uh, working on that um, since being thrust into the public eye uh, since 2016. And interestingly, that was the same time I started my PhD, um, my PhD studies. Um, I actually started, I started my uh, first seminar the week after she 
reported to the police for the first time. So uh, my my PhD studies have overlapped um, very much with this topic of abuse, and uh, so we uh, we live. That's that's where my interest in this topic comes from. And as you noted, uh, the accusation of penal substitutionary atonement as abusive uh, is very in vogue today. Um, and so, as a uh, as a particular Baptist, uh, I, I didn't want to believe something that would, uh, I don't want to confess something that, that uh, promotes, that encourages, that would um, in, in, in any way justify abuse or abusive systems. And so my, my interest in that has been very, very personal. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, we, we live in, we, I, I should mention, I have four children as well. I don't, I don't know why that's particularly relevant, but everyone needs to mention how many children they have. So we have four children and everyone always asks us, oh, everything you do, you must be so tired because of all the things you're involved in. And I said, no, we'd be just this exhausted if no one knew who we were because our kids don't <laughs> sleep. So. I hear that. Uh, that's awesome. Well, thanks again for, for joining us today. Um, so let's maybe just start with a, a basic definition of penal substitutionary atonement. And if you don't mind, uh, as you're defining, it may be situated uh, between the other theories of atonement that some folks might be familiar with. Sure. So penal substitutionary atonement is a very reformed doctrine. Uh, you don't really see it articulated as such. Uh, until, you know, kind of John Calvin and his successors. Um, and you can probably figure out the meaning of it by the name. So penal has to do with punishment. So, so there is, um, believe that uh, sin is a transgression of God's law and that God has, God has instituted punishments for breaking his law. Um, and then, uh, so, so, so sin must be punished. Um, so there is an aspect of, of, um, of punishment and then substitutionary, um, is that, um, there's a substitution made. So there's a punishment, but there's a substitution made, um, so that Christ suffers the punishment in place of those who believe, um, and uh, that is that is kind of a development. It's a it's a I guess some people would see it as a subset of a view that originates uh, with Anselm, which is the um, which is that that uh, my goodness I just drew a complete blank, guys. Um, satisfaction theory. Satisfaction. Thank you. So that's really a subset of the uh, satisfaction theory that was initially promoted by Anselm, which is that, that what God, uh, what is satisfied is not so much God's justice or the law of God, but the, um, but God's, God's honor and his, his, uh, honoring his role as king. Um, then you also have, you have the governmental 
um, theory, which was uh, which was put forward by Hugo Grotius, actually in response to the Socinians, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and Grotius said that that while uh, a penal aspect is not necessary for God to forgive sin, so God doesn't have to punish in order for in order to forgive. He said that it's necessary for God to punish for there to be that penal aspect, for God to uphold his government, to, to uphold laws. Um, and so he took that as the kind of foundation for uh, also civil justice. Um, so he says, yes, he agreed with the Socinians that God could just decide to forgive sins if he, if he wanted to without requiring a satisfaction. Um, but he disagreed with them by saying that 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 a um, punishment was was necessary in some way. Then you have the Christus Victor, um, and that's a very diverse that's a very diverse um, view. Uh, people have all kinds of theories, but basically basically Christus Victor uh, is is the view that at the cross Christ was uh, overcoming sin and death. Um, and people have all kinds of ways that they take that. Um, actually, some, so a lot of good work has been done uh, integrating both penal substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor. Um, so Jeremy Treat, I think, has a, a book, The Crucified King. Uh, does an excellent job treating that. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then the one that the, um, you know, it's kind of the more liberal view and the one that the Socinians uh, held to is that at the cross there was no requirement from God God wasn't behind it but what Christ is doing at the cross is setting an example and again people take that different directions you know it's a example of nonviolence. it's a protest against the state um, but ultimately they said there's no objective nothing objective happens between God and man at the cross but, but what happens is that Christ has set an example uh, for us to follow. Um, and, and honestly, there's a, there's a big, there, it, it's not necessary to view all of those as competing um, mm -hmm. theories of atonement. Um, I think some people are going to emphasize them. Um, I, I, personally, I don't think that any one of those uh, theories contradicts penal substitutionary atonement. I think that that all of those are emphasis that can be seen throughout scripture in various ways. Um, but a lot of the time people will want to deny the penal substitutionary atonement aspect because they see it as particularly problematic. <clears throat> and um, in, in particular, as we've discussed, they see it as, as a picture of, of abuse, uh, that, that God the Father has anger and wrath towards humans um, and he has to take it out. And so the son inserts himself between God and humanity. And so the father pours out his wrath and anger on the son. And uh, in so doing, his anger is satisfied. And then he's now able to forgive uh, sinful humans. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the problem that a lot of people see with penal substitutionary atonement. Now, do, you, do you think that the way that some evangelicals and you know folks who which you know i i got to stop myself from even using that word because i'm not even sure theologically what it means anymore but um 
let's just say a- adherence of of uh, penal substitution. Do you think the way that that we talk about it sometimes, maybe we invite those those objections, like the the cosmic child abuse objection? What are some ways that we can be more uh, precise in the way that we talk about it that that might help us um, to push back against those objections? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I I think that a lot of work, especially in academic circles as, you know, responding to this critique has pointed to um, other academic sources and said, look, John Calvin described it. He wasn't describing this. When you read it in our systematic theology, it's not quite child abuse. And so they kind of, they brush off the objection as if it's a, a plot to, you know, attack penal substitutionary atonement. Um, I think that um, if you if you actually go back though and look at uh, where this where this objection first came, it was through feminist literature in the 1980s. Uh, Rita Nakashima Brock was the one who kind of coined that phrase uh, in reference to penal substitutionary atonement as child cosmic abuse, and her 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 works and the works of 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 other uh, writers at the time were not, you know, they weren't cold theological works that were just, you know, dissecting penal substitutionary atonement or even interacting with, you know, the theologians who first articulated it. They were writing from their personal experiences in the church with abusers and with abuse, and they were reacting to how these doctrines and ideas of forgiveness and justice and all this were used to silence them and to justify their abuse and to minimize um, the abuse that had taken place against them. And so they, they identified penal substitutionary atonement or this as, as kind of reflecting a, an abusive mindset that they saw uh, permeating Christian theology. And so that's where that objection initially came from. And then uh, in, in recent years, nonviolence and Anabaptist theologians have really pick, picked it up and taken it further and say, yeah, at, at, the, uh, at the cross and as penal substitutionary atonement is articulated, we see the father acting against the son and for the father's benefit. And they say that, that goes against the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and, and I think that it has to be admitted, um, and it's, it, again, it's a hard thing to point down, be, uh, to pin down, because from personal experience, I know that people articulate from pulpits and just in casual conversations, an idea of the cross where it's the father's wrath against the son so that the father can forgive. Um, I actually, when we were, when we would go up to, uh, we live in, in Louisville and we would have to go up to Michigan quite frequently for court appearances and court dates. Um, and, uh, so on the road on I-65 North, just, uh, outside of Indianapolis, there is a, I guess it's an evangelistic billboard and it's a, uh, a picture of, Jesus on the cross and he's all bloody. Oh, I've he's seen got the, that. <laughs> yeah, he's got the crown of thorns on his head and you know there's blood everywhere and it says he was he was placed in a human body to be killed in our place or, or something along those lines. 
and 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 it's very it's very much like this is this is this is a violence from god against jesus and uh you know he was put into a human body like it's 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 very much god did this to jesus and uh when i when i when i see that i'm just like yeah I, maybe maybe in our in the cold collected way that we uh write in our systematic theology it, it doesn't look like that but what a lot of people are hearing is a is a doctrine that sounds an awful lot like that yeah um and so i think that i think that um a lot of people just want to move away from penal substitutionary atonement i think that the the um the answer to this it's not simply just to defend penal substitutionary atonement so i can have a good conscience um you know and say well it's not really abusive um what what i've what i've really been interested in seeing is that i think that properly articulated not only is penal substitutionary atonement not a picture of abuse but it actually is a, a picture of authority and a a picture of justice that gives us some framework with which to um, condemn and deal with abuse in our midst. So a lot of work has been done to defend penal substitutionary atonement from this uh, charge. I want to say that if we actually will go back, I'm not saying let's, let's change penal substitutionary atonement to fit our current context. I think that if we go back, we have a better understanding of the Trinitarian context and beliefs in which it was originally articulated and the Christological doctrines in which it was originally articulated, that penal substitutionary atonement gives us uh, ammunition to deal with abuse and to condemn it. Um, and, and so I, I've really done a lot of uh, research going back, not, you know, I get accused of being progressive uh, all the time. I mean, as soon as you start talking about, you know, abuse in the church and all those people just think that you're some radical, you know, feminist or something like that. Oh, man. And uh, I, I'm, I'm like, well, I'm reading John Owen and reading John Calvin. I, I think that's the way we need to go. Let's start listening more to them. Um, and, uh, and then applying it to our present, our present age or our present situation. Um, so yeah, that uh, re really it's by paying attention first and foremost to the Trinity that we that we come to understand uh, why um, atonement is not abusive. That's good. So maybe you, you know you mentioned Owen a little bit, and I know you sent me and Brandon a paper you wrote up, which I thought was really helpful. And yeah, you can you contrasted I guess Sicinius and Owen a little bit mm -hmm. in that and their understanding of just atonement. So maybe before we move forward on talking more about atonement, its relationship to abuse, we just talk about what is Sicinius saying, what is Owen saying, and why are they saying what they're saying about the atonement? Right. So um, uh, the Socinians uh, come from, they're named after Faustus Socinus. He was a uh, Italian theologian who eventually in the, um, 16th century that he found his way to Poland um, and uh, his 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 I, he was he was radically committed to freedom not only for uh, humans but also for God 
Um, and, and he said that if, if, if justice uh, were, if, 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 if punishment were something intrinsic to God, then God would not be free. Um, so his, he said that but both, both punishment and mercy, or both justice and mercy, were not, were not due to attributes in God, but were, were simply uh, expressions of God's will. So God didn't, there, there was nothing in God that made him have to forgive or have to punish. And uh, <clears throat> so he said that God could simply choose to forgive with no substitutionary satisfaction of justice necessary. Um, and uh, so he said, he said, well, I mean, if, how can you call it, how can you call it forgiveness if, you know, a, a, a banker doesn't forgive a debt if someone else pays that debt. It's been paid. So, so when, when scripture describes God freely forgiving, how can we say that he's freely forgiving if he's been paid? Um, and so he wanted, he wanted to say that, that justice, is, justice and forgiveness is simply, um, it's, it's something that God can choose in his own will. And so at what, what's happening at the cross is that God has, God has chosen to forgive, um, to forgive people. And those who follow the law of God uh, merit eternal life. And so in his view, Jesus Christ was not the eternal son of God. He was a, he was merely a human, specially anointed by God to serve as an example of the kind of life that merited eternal life. And so at the cross, there was nothing objective happening at the cross. What happened was Jesus set an example of radical forgiveness or not of radical obedience rather and that the resurrection served as, as a promise from God that those who live this kind of life would merit eternal life. Um, so, of course, uh, John Owen was horrified by this teaching, and when it, when it really became popular after Socinus's death in England um, in the middle of the um, 17th century, he, he wrote a number of works against it. Um, and he, he, he took the idea, um, previous theologians like Augustine and Calvin, uh, didn't believe that, uh, satisfaction was strictly necessary. They held that, that it was the way that God had ordained to save humans, uh, to save and elect people. Um, but that, that, uh, conceivably God could have chosen another way of salvation to save people. He could have chosen to simply forgive. Um, Owen saw that as inviting um, an acceptance of the Socinian idea that, that uh, it's merely, justice is merely an act of God, God's will, rather than relating to anything in the, God's perfection. Um, so he stressed very, very strenuously that justice is actually, in fact, um, due to God's perfection. And that, given the existence of sin in the world, um, and given that God, and given the existence of God's law, God could not, in fact, choose to simply forgive sin. Uh, that in order for God to be true to his own character, and uh, for God to uh, be, be truly just, God, there had to be a uh, satisfaction for sin. 
God had to punish them. Um, and so, so, um, so that was, those were kind of the, the two competing ideas. But, but for, for my, my purposes, what I was very interested in was, um, was Owen's insistence on, um, on justice. Um, a, a lot of the times, a lot of the times um, in, in contemporary discussion, what is, what is emphasized, particularly in reformed circles, is the idea of God's wrath, um, God's anger against sin, all these sorts of things. Um, and I, I, it's a really complicated discussion because, as you know, with, with systematic theology, once you start probing in one area, your theology proper, your doctrine of the Trinity, your Christology, all of those have implications for, you know, your second order doctrines like atonement and so on. Um, and I think that one of the one of the things that we face today um, is is a loss not only of of Trinit, you know Trinitarian uh, categories where those are actually taught and those are categories that that people in the pew think with, but also um, ideas of God's immutability. Um, you know that when we speak of wrath, what we're talking about is not an emotion. Uh, we're not we're not talking about you know God getting angry in the same way you know a father might get angry uh, and lash out at his son when he spills milk all over the floor. Um, and I, th I think that I think that failing to have those categories in place really puts us at a disadvantage uh, when when people hear discussions of wrath. Um, and so so Owen in talking about justice really helps. You know, not to say let's get rid of the idea of wrath, because that's obviously a scriptural idea. But what does that actually mean in the context of who God is and His character? And Owen, Owen, really, um, you know, God's concern is justice. God's concern is rightness. God's concern is to be uh, true to His own His own character um, and to condemn sin, um, not because He's, you know, ticked off about it. Um, but because that's that's who he is, justice is is an outflow of his of his eternal perfections. Um, and it, and and so so Owen located God's justice in God's nature, and why that's especially important when you when you think about um, penal substitutionary atonement is if 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 God is a Trinity, and the Father, Son, and Spirit all share the same nature, then, then that justice is not something that belongs to the Father and the Son is satisfying that in the Father. It's that at the cross, the justice that is satisfied is God's justice, not the justice or anger of the Father, but it is, it is that which in God's nature demands justice, which is shared by the Son as well. So it was not some intra-Trinitarian intra violence where the Father takes out his wrath on the Son. But what is happening at the cross is that God, or Jesus Christ satisfies the justice of God. Not the justice of the Father, but the justice of God. And so Owen, in identifying and locating, um, locating God's justice, in God's nature 
really, really makes us unable to articulate penal substitutionary atonement in a way that sees the father acting against the son. Because what's happening is, it's the father and son and spirit working together at the cross to do justice. No, so you actually just mentioned the Father, Son, and Spirit working together, and, and that kind of leads right into what I wanted to ask about the Pactum Salutis. And, you know, that's a, um, I think, a distinctively uh, reformed doctrine. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but um, I think it, it plays a really important role and it's key in how we understand this. So, can you explain for us what is the Pactum and then, you know, exactly how does it help us better articulate? Um, the, the doctrine of penal substitution. Yeah, so uh, in, in uh, very broad terms, the pactum salutis is the idea that the uh, father and son covenanted together in eternity past um, to save a people. Um, so, so rather than, rather than the um, rather than you know christ's appearance in history and at the cross being the result of the father imposing his will because remember within uh within traditional trinitarian category the father doesn't have a distinct will from the son uh, mm -hmm. there's no sub, there's no despite what some evangelicals say today there's no eternal <laughs> submission of the son to the father where the, where the, where the son is saying, okay, I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. It's as much, it is as much the work of the, the son. So it, Augustine even says that, 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 that the, the sending of the son is as much the work of the son as it is the father in one sense. Um, now, of course, as with most Trinitarian things, we also, in another sense, it was also the father who sent the son, but, we, we, we can't see any, any uh, break in the, uh, the continuity of, of God's will. There's no, there's no submission going on there where this is something that the Father is making the Son do. So the Pactum Salutis is that, that God, has, God has in himself, in the three persons, chosen to save for himself a people in this way. Um, and so... Each, each person of the Trinity uh, carries out in, his, uh, in a way that is appropriate to his um, existence within Trinitarian order. Um, they, they each carry out their own roles, but they don't do it separately from or against one another. So really over against the idea of an abusive um, uh, idea of atonement, you have the Father and Son working together and the Spirit working together to achieve a goal that is common to all of them, to achieve something that each of them loves and desires. Um, there's no disagreement amongst them. There's no imposition of, of the will uh, on one to the other. Yeah, that was, that, when I was reading your paper, that was really helpful and clear. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you noted the difference between the Westminster Confession and mm -hmm. the Savoy Confession mm. on this very topic of whose justice is being satisfied. Yes. Um, so you know that I guess in Westminster, it talks about the justice of the Father. Yeah. And then you get to Savoy and it's the justice of God. So was that Owen 16, doing? I, 
I was just yeah. going to say before that, I, I went and looked, and the, so the 1689 picks up the language of the Savoy on that because yeah. I wasn't sure. Um, so yeah, I, I, actually, actually, listeners. I was. I had a uh, when I that was where I first saw it was in the 1689, and I boasted to my Presbyterian friends <laughs> of the superiority of the uh, of the 1689, and then you know as as happens, I did a little bit more research and found out that actually it was the uh, <laughs> Congregationalists who first made that change and that, uh, you know, we had just copied it. So, um, but yeah, so, it, and it was, I, I do think that uh, that, that is something that uh, could be attributed to Owen because, um, you know, the Westminster and Savoy in the 1689, they're also close. And so when you see a change, they didn't just mm. make that change for, for, yeah. uh, for fun. Um, and so, Owen, uh, Owen actually, you know, he, he said, um, he to whom it was offered, so sacrifice was, was God, God essentially considered with his glorious property of justice, which was to be atoned. Um, and so I think that, I think that when you see him make that, when you see the Savoy make that change from the Westminster that says, that the sacrifice of Jesus had fully satisfied the justice of his father. And then the Savoy says that the sacrifice, obedience of sacrifice of Jesus had fully satisfied the justice of God. I do think that's a very deliberate change. Now that's mm -hmm. not to say that I, I, you know, I don't think that the uh, Westminster is bad or wrong that we, you know, throw it out because they had improper, but th that's an important distinction. Um, that I think that we do well to attend to, even in our own articulation of of uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And I actually, I think I'm trying to remember what there's a popular song. Um, it's one of the new hymns where it talks about you know Jesus satisfying the wrath of His Father. Oh, it's in Christ alone, right? Oh I, no, and it's saying the wrath of God. Yeah, in Christ alone yeah, actually okay. says of God. There's yeah, another right, okay. one which says of His Father. Um, now that, that, the thing is that distinction might be too nuanced, you know, I, I don't think you're going to get to the, this isn't abusive. If that's simply the, uh, you, you just make that one change, right? I don't think yeah. people are going to make that. What needs, so what needs to happen is that idea of, of the inseparability of God's operations, mm -hmm. that the, the unity of God's will all these things, which I think are really treated as like these archaic, irrelevant doctrines, I really think that they need to be brought to the forefront of our consciousness um, in evangelical churches. And I really think that if you do not teach those categories in the most, you know, most basic terms and locate penal substitutionary atonement within that, which is how it's always articulated in the Reformers and the Puritans, um, I think that you do end up with a, with a model of penal substitutionary atonement that is abusive. Mm. I really do think that. And I've, I've heard it in, in sermons and, you know, and, and average, you know, white guys who sit, you know, young seminary students, seminary students may read that and go like, like that's just a bunch of social justice warriors making something <laughs> up. But I, I can tell you that that you know people who have been abused, people who have suffered 
these kinds of um, injustices against them, they're very sensitive mm. to things like that. They, what, that's what they hear. And they're not doing it just because they're like, hmm, I'm going to make something up so that I can mm. uh, have a weapon to attack penal substitutionary atonement. Because um, that's not really re- what they do here is that it's okay for a father who's angry to take it out on his son. And that, that it is noble of the son to simply insert himself and, and, and take that, you know, that wrath um, that's, you know, uh, and, and absorb that in himself. And, you know, they, people do hear that. That's yeah. not just making it up. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that it's, it is um, incumbent on preachers especially to be articulating these doctrines to be uh, in their proper context and, and from the cross. And then also to take, to take the, the, the implication of this is not simply that, um, uh, you know, God has wrath, but, but also look at, look at what this is an example of. It's not simply, so abuse happens when a, um, uh, an abuser has a desire or a need or wants something and regardless of the benefit or uh, justice, takes it out or takes it from an innocent third party. So whether that's, you know, takes out his anger on their child who doesn't deserve it, uh, or, uh, you know, rapes or steals or anything like that. You have an imbalance and someone who is not, uh, who is not in a position to demand those things, uh, taking it by force or coercion or anything like that to the detriment of that third party. At the atonement, then, if we understand the Trinity correctly, what you actually have is the person who could rightly um, demand justice lays aside his prerogative to demand that justice and and suffers and takes the consequences on himself. So it's the exact opposite picture. Instead of saying Mm -hmm. you will suffer for me, it's I will suffer for you. And when you you understand that the son was not forced to the cross, the son was not commanded to the cross, but that the son in agreement with, and not simply like God said, go do this and Jesus said, okay, fine. But it was, it was equally the will of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There was no coercion. There was no cajoling. It was, it, was, it was the decision of God to save people in this way. That, that changes the whole landscape. Um, it, 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 you know, it, it brings new, new meaning even to that picture of, of husbands lay down your lives for your wives. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, 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 you die for the unjust. Um, and it's, and, and so it's not even, it's not even God making Jesus die for the unjust, which if, 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 if one of like, if, if Brandon, you came and, you know, forgive making this extreme, but you, you killed one of my children. And, uh, I said, well, you know, penalty must be paid and I killed Jordan, there's no correlation there. That's, you know, they said, well, right. I killed Jordan. And, well, that's not just. 
right? Because that's an innocent, Jordan is an innocent third party who didn't bear that, that, that responsibility. But really what it is, is, um, it is, it is, it would be me saying, Brandon, I, I love you so much. And, you know, and then me suffering the consequence in your place. Um, so it's, that's, that's the idea. And what, what even further than this, even further than this and further implication for our uh, speaking about justice is that so often the, the, what abuse victims hear from pastors and from their abusers and is God just, God forgives, why can't you? And so, so there's, there's this real using, using Jesus um, sacrifice at the cross to minimize the evil of abuse. And what we say is if, if we believe that justice is something intrinsic to God because of his holy nature, we can't simply overlook injustice. And especially when there's, it's an abuse by an authority, um, using the cross of Christ to minimize and to tell, tell the abuse victim, well, you just need to get over it. Um, as I mean, that's, that's the exact opposite of yeah. what is portrayed at the cross. So it gives us, it gives us an, a strong understanding that no, pursuing justice is right. Pursuing justice, when someone comes to you, a weak person, uh, an abuse victim comes to you, says, I've been abused, it's incumbent on you as someone who loves God and wants to model his justice to help them pursue justice. And that's not to say that, you know, abuse or any of those things are the unforgivable sins, but it needs to be coupled with repentance. It needs to be, it needs to be coupled with um, an understanding of, of this abuse is, is terrible. Um, it's harmful. God hates it. We hate it. And so we're going to work with all of our might to, uh, to confront and reject it. So in your studies and reading, are there any good resources that really, I guess, balance this well and can help those who want to understand and think about how this doctrine maybe interlocks with abuse? Well, is there anything out there like that uh, that they can get their hands on or is that kind of a vacuum? Uh, that's a vacuum. Okay. So there, there are a few, there are a few works. <laughs> there are a few works that kind of, you know, address the issue of abuse kind of uh, polemically. Yeah. That accusation saying, you know, this is why it's not true. Um, I, I think that some, you know, like Donald uh, McLeod's book, um, his one on the atonement, he, he does a pretty good job in there of saying, you know, of, of recognizing the validity of the feminist critiques mm. without, um, but he doesn't really, he doesn't really go very far into yeah. that. Um, he just says their critiques are, are valid. We need to be careful how we express it. And then he, you know, but he doesn't, he doesn't really connect it. So, um, this is what I'll be writing my dissertation on because I think it is uh, a vacuum. Um, okay. And um, 
yeah. So there's there's not really anything out there that I am aware of that explicitly connects the two in any in any great detail. Well, hopefully um, we look forward to seeing your dissertation come yeah, out once too. it's done. <laughs> I, I, I hope I, I hope I get there at some point. <laughs> so it's, I mean, and, and, and honestly, one of the, one of the areas where I see this really having um, a major uh, um, implications for is, is the debate about the Trinity, mm. um, especially in, you know, recent years, the idea of eternal functional subordination and, I mean, I, I love Dr. Ware. I've you know, taken classes with him. I've, I've taken um, seminars, not seminars. I've done colloquiums with him. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible man. But I, I have to say that I think that that doctrine in particular makes it very, very, very hard to articulate a doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement that does not fall into this trap. And, and when I see people who hold to this doctrine speaking generally about atonement, I often, they often express themselves in ways that it is the father acting against or upon the son for the father's benefit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, I think that we need to be um, like, and I'm not accusing these people of heresy, of course. But I do think that in order to both answer this challenge and to have a right understanding of authority, um, I do think that we need to. I do think that we need to have uh, be careful how we articulate these things. Yeah. And and the irony of that, of course, is that uh, you know eternal functional subordination really came about as an attempt to. Um, challenge and to guard against feminism and you know feminist uh, roles uh, ideas of gender roles and so on and the irony is that in so doing they've actually opened themselves up and made it very difficult to to defend against the feminist charge that penal substitutionary atonement can resemble abuse yeah so for those of our listeners who like want to follow along with stuff you're putting out and you know, eventually when your dissertation's done, get a copy of that and everything. Are, are there places they can go to follow it? Do you have a website? Um, do you like social media or are you just kind of a hermit? Stay I, in your office? I, uh, I hate social media, but I'm on it uh, <laughs> quite a bit. Um, so I, I, I mainly stick to Twitter. Um, I, so you can follow me there at JJ underscore Den Hollander. Um, but yeah, um, I am on the slow track of my dissertation. I still have a few, uh, two more seminars to finish up. I've only been able to be doing one seminar at a, at a time. So Dr. Dr. Moeller told me I could take as long as I need. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna hold him to that. <laughs> but I, 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 I'm making steady progress, but I still have two more seminars before I even get to the writing stage. So it, it might be a while. But yeah, well, Twitter's, sure, Twitter's where I hang out. So people want I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be interested in following along on the journey um, on that. So we want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this. I think this is a fascinating and fruitful topic, obviously one that is uh, very relevant and needed in a lot of our churches. Um, I mean, I think everybody can probably 
talk, I mean, everybody knows somebody who's been abused in some way or another. Yeah. And figuring out how as a church that we interact with that well uh, and take away doctrines that enable such things as that, I think is really helpful. So very thankful for you walking us through this. Um, And for those who've been listening, as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast. And we thank you for tuning in and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the next episode as well.